the climate scenarios have this overshoot idea in mind. Overshoot is exactly what it sounds like. Average global temperatures rocket up beyond what our civilization can survive, but by then we're pulling greenhouse gases out of the atmosphere because we've saved our existing forests, restored others, and even built a bunch of carbon-sucking machines. Oh, we're going to go ahead and blow past all these targets, but then we'll bring everything back down again, and trees will be sequestering the carbon back again. But the ability for the trees to do that really depends on how steep we yeah. go up that curve and come back down. Jason Funk is an environmental scientist who runs the Land Use and Climate Knowledge Initiative, or LUCKY. He's one of my go-to experts on forests and climate change, and has been ever since we first met at the Poznan Climate Talks in 2008. So if it's like really sharp, like the Matterhorn, and we go up mm -hmm. and it's super pointy at the top and then we fall back down again, that's really bad for these, yeah, these dynamics. Yeah, they're going to be wiped out. They're yeah, be, exactly. Yeah. And then we'll have a lot of dead, dying forests that won't be able to shift in response to that really steep peak. Right. Back in May, he sent me a paper called Long-Term Thermal Sensitivity of Earth's Tropical Forests, which looks at whether forests can continue to pull carbon from the atmosphere as temperatures rise. What they found is, it's complicated. If instead it's more like a smooth curve, like Kilimanjaro, mm -hmm. then these trees may be able to persist and all these other dynamics can play their course and play their role in this drama mm -hmm. and may be able to mitigate that effect. So they're still around, they're still around to play that role later. We have less turnover and more durable terrestrial biosphere that's going to be able to help us out of this predicament. Okay. Man may be unwittingly changing the world's climate through the waste products of his civilization. There's a group of us now who are proposing that the Earth has actually entered a new epoch, and that is the Anthropocene. We know that the enemy is carbon, and we know it's ugly face. We should put a big fat price on it. And of course, add to that, drop the subsidies. Earth, we broke it, we own it. And nothing is as it was. Not the trees, not the seas, not the forests, farms, or fields. And not the global economy that depends on all of these. But we can restore it, make it better, greener, more resilient, more sustainable. But how? Technology? Geoengineering? Are we doomed to live on a bionic planet, or is nature herself the answer? That's the question we address in every episode of Bionic Planet, a podcast of the Anthropocene, the new epoch defined by man's impact on Earth. And today we address it from the familiar perspective of tropical forests and how these forests can and can't mop up greenhouse gas as temperatures rise. I recorded the actual interview in late August on Jason's front porch. He lives down the street from a hospital, so you'll hear occasional ambulances, and we were beset by many plagues, cicadas, mosquitoes, and of course, we always have COVID-19. But I learned a lot, and I hope you do too. Also, I have to apologize for the long hiatus between episodes again. We took on some projects at Forest Trends that required a lot more of my time than anticipated. The good news is that these projects have given me an opportunity to dive really deeply into issues related to ecological restoration, and they'll make some great shows in the future. But I still need your help to produce them. 
We're in a weird spot right now in terms of climate coverage in the news. The issues that I care so deeply about and have been covering for decades, such as natural climate solutions, green supply chains, and deforestation, and of course the, the general interplay between economy and ecology, they're all showing up more and more in the mainstream media, which is great. Unfortunately, the same news outlets that so long failed to understand the enormity of the climate challenge are now failing to understand, let alone explain, the solutions available to us and their limitations. If you like what you hear on Bionic Planet, if you think I'm doing a good job of translating these issues into plain English and putting them into context for you, and you want to hear more, then help me give it to you by becoming a patron at patreon.com forward slash bionic planet. That's Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash bionic planet. There you can support me for as little as $1 per episode and with a monthly cap. This way, if I don't manage to generate an episode in a month, like <laughs> once it just passed, you don't get charged. And if I manage to crank out a ton of episodes, which is what I really want to do, you don't get whacked either. The address again is patreon.com forward slash bionic planet. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash bionic planet. You can also help by helping others find the show by giving me a five-star review on whichever podcatcher you access me through. Remember, the more stars I get, the more ears I get. And the more ears I get, the more minds I can reach. And we have to reach hundreds of millions of minds if we're to meet the climate challenge. We can do it if we all work together. We're, we're looking at this paper that came out. It's called The Long-Term Thermal Sensitivity of Earth's Tropical Forests. And now you hear come the cicadas again. <laughs> They're firing <laughs> up just as we get going. We've always had this idea that if we save the forest, we can help absorb all this extra carbon dioxide that's in the yes. atmosphere. We can reduce climate change. And then there's also been this fear that as temperatures rise, trees are going to stop absorbing carbon. And that's also been out there. Yes. And then there's this third element that uh, the more carbon is in the air, the more carbon they have to absorb. And yes. what this is saying is you've got these two competing factors going against each other. Yes. That's the gist mm -hmm. of it. Okay. So, yeah. A lot of people forget that forests are like in flux all the time. They're growing, they're dying, they're storing carbon. Some of it is in the long term, over the lifetime of like trees that could be centuries old or in soil where they're stored for a long time. Some of it is as ephemeral as the leaves that grow one year and drop off and decay away in a single year. So this paper is looking at those types of dynamics over time and then how those things are gonna change in the future in response to climate change. And these, and these researchers and uh, organizations, they're all part of this network. It's, um, what's it called? The they are part of the Rainfor Network and that's a network of tropical forest plots. They've been collecting data there for decades and they keep resampling them as a way to keep monitoring how are these forests changing, what's going on here, what are the dynamics. And a couple of years ago, maybe 2017, this group published a couple papers looking at what was happening in the Amazon, what's happening in Asian forests, and finding 
and and African forests. And uh, I think there was one yeah. for African forests as well. Yes, there was this assumption that these forests would be in equilibrium. They wouldn't be sequestering any more carbon, that they would be in balance between the decay that was happening all the time. We call that respiration, where microbes and the trees themselves are breathing just like we do. It takes energy to metabolize, to just keep them running. Mm -hmm. What's cool about plants is they have the ability also then to photosynthesize, to take in carbon dioxide from the atmosphere and give off oxygen through photosynthesis. Both of those processes are related to climatic factors like temperature. Mm -hmm. um, they speed up um, in, in response to temperature. Let's do a quick refresher on high school biology. Photosynthesis is what this podcast is all about. It's how plants use the energy of the sun to inhale carbon dioxide and exhale oxygen. Some of that carbon mixes with other chemicals to become carbohydrates, which the plants use for energy. But another way, they convert light energy into chemical energy. Then comes respiration, which I haven't talked about that much on this show. It's the opposite of photosynthesis because it involves breathing in more oxygen to help break down the sugars from photosynthesis so the plants can grow, just like we do. Now, we'll soon hear from Jason how excessive respiration wears plants out. If they work too hard, they run out of gas. They get tired. People are like that, too. And I'm a person. <laughs> I want to produce more of these episodes. But if I've got to make my living tending to other projects, I don't have the energy. If you like what you hear and want to hear more, then you can help me deliver it by becoming a patron at patreon.com forward slash bionicplanet. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash Bionic Planet. There you can support me for as little as $1 per episode and with a monthly cap. You can also help by giving me a five-star review on whichever podcatcher you access me through. Remember, the more stars I get, the more ears I get. And the more ears I get, the more minds I can reach. And we have to reach hundreds of millions of minds if we're to meet the climate challenge. We can do it if we all work together. Now back to Jason Funk and our discussion about photosynthesis and respiration. Both of those processes are related to climatic factors like temperature. Mm -hmm. um, they speed up um, in, in response to temperature. And that's what this paper begins to look at. So we have this increase in carbon okay. dioxide in the atmosphere that acts like fertilizer for these plants. At the same time, you have an increase in temperature that has a bigger effect on the respiration part and a lesser effect on photosynthesis. So that means the trees are burning more energy, they're metabolizing more, and that's using up that energy faster. So this paper, for the first time at this extent, looking all across the tropics, is trying to understand that temperature effect. Okay. What confuses me right now is they're breathing faster, right? Yes. Mm -hmm. So they're taking in more carbon dioxide and breathing out more oxygen. Shouldn't they be holding more? Like, why does, if, if they're breathing faster, why does that mean that they're storing or absorbing less carbon? Yeah. So... Here's an example where the breathing metaphor is not quite... <laughs> okay. <laughs> it breaks down. Through photosynthesis, they're taking in carbon dioxide, as I mentioned, and that process 
has a maximum. It depends on how much sunlight is hitting the plants. And that depends on where their leaves are and if the canopy, how it's oriented toward that sunlight coming in. So one aspect of that is the plants are getting their energy through this photosynthesis process, this engine. And the sunlight is the catalyst for that or allows that to happen. That's where the energy comes from. They're grabbing these carbon dioxide molecules out of the atmosphere and then building them into their tissues. That's how plants grow. Mm -hmm. Those tissues, though, they require energy to keep going, just like we do. So we eat something, then we burn that energy. The trees, they're eating that carbon dioxide, in essence, and then their tissues have to burn energy just to keep themselves going. So it's that burning energy part. In a sense, you could think of it as becoming less efficient, just like on a really hot day. We're sweating. We're like using a lot of energy just to keep ourselves in stasis. The same thing is happening with these plants. And obviously they can't get up and move or go for a swim or something like that to cool off. They're just rooted in place. So they have to use that energy to keep themselves cool and keep those metabolic processes chugging along. All of that reduces their efficiency. And what this paper is looking at is that these trees are going to grow more slowly. It means they're going to not be able to accumulate as much carbon as we thought they would. Mm-hmm. So this conventional wisdom that they're just in stasis, in equilibrium, this is shifting that conventional wisdom and saying, as things get warmer, that equilibrium is going to shift. The upper limit of carbon that they can store is going to start going down. Gotcha. Okay. And what's interesting, too, is that it's contingent on the, the highest temperatures that they have. So if you have a long period of sustained warmth, but it's not peaking at high levels, it won't be as bad as it is. Yes. Mm-hmm. Okay. Several years ago, it was observed that the nighttime temperatures in the tropics were moving upward as a result of climate change faster than those daytime maximums. And people were starting to speculate, what could that mean for these plant processes and this respiration process and all that? What this paper is finding is they looked at all these different factors and they found that daytime maximum temperature was the one that was most tightly correlated to this effect that they're looking at, this dampening down of the ability to sequester carbon. Okay. What that means is it's probably driven by the plants just being unable to cope with those higher temperatures. It may also have uh, sort of knock-on effects then with mortality of these trees. If they're sitting in this place and it's exceeding their ability to live at these high temperatures and sustain themselves, those trees are gonna die away and then you begin to see a turnover in the species that are present there. Mm-hmm. So they talked about those effects then as these other more complicating factors. They talked about the physiology being one response. So each individual tree has some ability to respond just like we acclimate here in Chicago, mm-hmm. winter time. By the end of winter, you can go out in a sweatshirt and you feel fine at yep. 20 degrees Fahrenheit. Whereas, when the, the first time that hits in November, <laughs> you're like, oh, I need my winter coat. Right. So they can adapt and adjust their own physiology to feel more comfortable uh, in a manner of speaking. Okay. And, and that's this issue of, just to bring up the technical terms, that this is the issue of physiological plasticity and interannual variability. <laughs> that's right. right. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So each individual tree has the ability to adjust a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, what you can also then see is not an individual tree, but a species has a range of individuals. And so some that are more adapted to that higher temperature may Mm. begin to persist in this place, even though individuals may die. Right, right. So that's within the species, there's a range of adaptability. Mm -hmm. And then finally, we have at the community level, 
as species drop out because they're not able to persist, you could have new species replace them that are more suited to those things. So right. that's community level uh, shifting or adaptation. And I guess if we're in the tropics, so there aren't many species that can move in. There aren't exactly, many. yeah. yeah. We're already at the place where the temperatures are the highest, so it's not... And then as, as the trees are getting more and more tired, uh, more and more inefficient, less and less able to, to digest the carbon for like Is that a good word to use? Yeah, or? I think yeah. that's... We can go with that. Okay. But there's so much more carbon, so it's going to be shoved down there. Well, they don't have throats, but there's these two balancing effects. Yes. Okay. And what's new here is that the temperature effect is stronger than they thought. Is that right? Or is that, was that what's new? Or is it just that they're finding the balance is a little more complicated than? So I think we've known about this effect at the plot level for a long time. Mm -hmm. And they've been able to synthesize this data for the entire tropics and then okay. quantify it and gotcha. say, what this means is a loss of this amount of carbon in these forests worldwide. And that's a pretty significant amount. It's not a huge amount. But I think everybody was expecting the CO2 fertilization to win out. And, oh, we don't have to worry. Okay. These forests are going to be fine. They're sequestering more carbon. It's going to be okay as long as we don't chop them down. Mm -hmm. Now they're saying, no, we've got to re really pay attention to the temperature also, not just the amount of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. So it complicates the story a little bit. And then there was a ra rainfall or moisture was another. Yeah, the moisture thing is cool. The moisture thing is this. High temperatures whack the ability of trees to sequester carbon most during very dry, dry seasons. If you have higher temperatures and a normal to wet dry season, the impact isn't as high, at least not in the trees. The impact is, however, high in the soils. Put another way, moisture impacts the carbon storing potential for trees and soil differently as temperatures rise, which is one of the reasons we really should just stabilize temperatures at this point. But here's the key sentence from the paper, quote, in soils, moisture limitation, in other words, low moisture, suppresses the temperature response of heterotrophic respiration, whereas in trees, moisture limitation increases the mortality risks of high temperatures. So high temperatures plus low humidity really messes up the trees. But in soils, high temperatures and high humidity can mess up the carbon in the soil. This brings up an issue that I'll loop back to later in the conversation, and it's a critique I get a lot. And it's that I put too much emphasis on land management and not enough on just letting nature be. I get that, and I really want to just let nature be. But the fact is, we have already destabilized nature. We've destabilized the ecosystems that keep us and our civilization going. COVID-19 is nothing compared to the green swan of climate change. I've spent 20 years deep in the weeds of this stuff, and I've got a pretty broad understanding of the science, the economics, and the social forces at play. I don't consider myself an expert, but I've been around long enough to know who the real experts are and who's just making noise. Unfortunately, when my colleagues in mainstream media parachute into this space, they usually fixate on the wrong people, and the consequences can be tragic. It's one reason we're in this mess. I haven't had the bandwidth to produce as many episodes as I want, but I do try to make each episode worth listening to. If you think they're worth listening to as well, and if you want more and better episodes, then help me out by becoming a patron at patreon.com forward slash bionic planet.
I listen to some of these NPR, BBC, and New York Times podcasts, and it takes them five minutes to name all of the contributors, the producers, the sound designer, the fact checkers. It's, I just have me for now, and only part-time. I am open to sponsorship if it doesn't come with strings. So for now, I'm listener-supported. You're a listener, and you can support me for as little as $1 per episode and with a monthly cap. You can do that at patreon.com forward slash bionic planet. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash bionic planet. You can also help by giving me a five-star review on whichever podcatcher you access me through. Remember, the more stars I get, the more ears I get. And the more ears I get, the more minds I can reach. And we have to reach hundreds of millions of minds if we're to meet the climate challenge. We can do it if we all work together. This kind of sets up at least two more steps for further research with information mm -hmm. we already have in hand, stitching things together. So because this group has already looked at the CO2 fertilization effect, I would expect like the next big research question for them is put these two things together. Mm -hmm. We've got the temperature, which is making it more difficult to sequester carbon. We've got the CO2 fertilization making it easier. What happens when we mush those two things together? And that would be a big kind of data crunching exercise that then they would have to verify with what they're seeing in these individual plots and look at that closely. Mm -hmm. And the thing is, these are not uniform effects, right, right, across the whole tropics. There will be places where one dominates and the other fades away, and then there'll be the opposite in other places. So mapping that out and figuring out like, whoa, how is this competition gonna play out within these specific areas that we care about? I think that's going to be a cool study. Like yeah. I'm, I'm anticipating that's probably the next thing on their work list. Yeah. Even within this paper, they found these strong differences in different regions of the world. Yeah. And talked about the Amazon is really maybe going to get hammered. Yeah. Which lots of people really care about the Amazon, and there's already a lot of other things going on there that are going to affect this. So uh, that was a scary dynamic. On the other hand, they said African forests maybe look okay. Asian forests are actually doing all right. They're sequestering a lot, and they have really high carbon stocks now. So maybe the ones that are left mm -hmm. will be okay. And there were differences in the type of effects, like some eating my ankles here. Um, I know. Here yeah. comes the mosquitoes. <laughs> the we're having down. the plagues here. We've got the locusts, and now we've got the mosquitoes. <laughs> okay. Con continents with high carbon stocks had either large carbon gains in Asia or long carbon residence times. That was interesting. What that suggests to me, there's not enough detail in this paper to really suss this out, but mm. it suggests to me based on some other work I did actually in the Rocky Mountain forests, where you would see mortality, you would see increased incidence of fires. Mm -hmm. So those kinds of effects are the things that can change this residence time. Mm -hmm. The way I interpret this is these Asian forests are sitting there, they're cranking away, and there aren't a lot of th threats to them right now from those types of issues. Whereas we've seen in the Amazon in more recent years, these cases where there were these widespread fires and those really affected the trees because there would be a, the presence of a drought, a sort of a background yeah. condition. Then once fire gets going, it devastates a big area, kills a lot of trees. And they, there's no uh, paleo record to indicate that there was any fire in the Amazon before these climate change effects started really changing oh, the, that's the dynamics. Okay. So it's not like North America where there is a paleo record. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And then also there are examples of, during El Nino conditions, 
some of these Asian forests, particularly in Indonesia, they are seeing big fires and people are out there, they're burning stuff and then the fires get out of control. That's also relatively uncommon, I think, in the paleo record. Mm -hmm. So for these tropical forests to be experiencing conditions where they can burn, that's unusual. And that would be reflected in this residence time. It means the carbon's coming in, but then it's going right back out again more quickly mm-hmm. as a result of these dynamics. Gotcha. Okay. Going back to the numbers here, I let's see, there was, I think the exact number they came up with, was it one degree, was it 16, was it petrograms? And it was almost double at, it was more than double, I think. Let me, where was it? I feel like that interview Trump did. <laughs> he was digging around in his papers. And, yeah. Look, here it is. Look at the chart. So it's, what it's, they looked at yeah. is they said, we yeah, measure the effect at one degree, and then we extrapolate it out to two degrees. Exactly. If there were two degrees of warming, we would anticipate this loss of a certain amount of carbon in forests already. Here it is. Our results suggest that stabilizing global surface temperatures at two degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels will cause a potential long-term biome-wide loss of 35.3 um, Petagrams. Pet- pet- yeah. Petagrams, which is the mm-hmm. same as a gigaton, isn't it? Pretty much. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then 95% cons- confidence interval. And the greatest reductions are in South America. Yeah, right? yeah. That's where the worst is going to come. I mean, how big is, th- I'm trying to remember, how big is the petrograms? I knew you were going to ask this question, so I started looking to mm-hmm. see how much carbon is in these forests right now. Yeah. And so globally, that's about 1% of carbon that's currently in forests. So okay. it's shaving off that amount okay. as a loss. That's just taking these temperature things into account. But I think everybody was like, this is either going to be an equilibrium or actually these forests are going to sequester more carbon. So that's a little bit of a surprising note to be mm-hmm. like, oh, no, it's going to be less. For all tropical forests, then it's about 2.5%. So it's not huge. It's not, gosh, this is the end of the world. But it's the opposite direction from what right, people right, expected. Right. One of the things I've been looking at recently is this idea that we're faced with a situation where we need to have a lot more forests. Um, We need to protect what we've got, and we maybe even need to expand. And there's been a number of research papers out about this recently. There was one by uh, a team led by Bastin et al. and Thomas Crowder that came out. It really got a big splash because they were like, hey, there's like close to a billion hectares of land that we could just reforest and it would be great. That paper got a lot of pushback from the scientific community saying, wait, that's way overestimated. But I think we could say the folks who work in this area think that something like half of that is actually quite reasonable, Mm -hmm. something we should be doing. That would be an expansion of forest area between 10 and 15% more forest worldwide. So if we increase the forest 10% and we lose... In terms of carbon sequestration, we lose 2.5%. It's really a 7.5%. Yeah, so that's why the implications of this paper matter for that right. question. Mm-hmm. We're thinking about, gosh, where are we going to find 500 million hectares of land to plant up trees or mm-hmm. allow re- natural regeneration? That's to keep us within our carbon budget. This is saying, nope, you've got to think about this a little bit more. Yeah. Because we may actually be losing carbon or the trees that we have now, the forests we have now, they're not going to be able to sequester as much as we expected because mm-hmm. of this temperature effect. That means we may have to expand that quite a bit more and every hectare is going to be hard to find. It's going to be hard to convince someone, hey, you should really be 
planting trees here or growing trees mm -hmm. instead of farming or having a pasture here or whatever. So that was already a tough challenge. Right, right. This makes it even tougher. Okay. And so those are small differences in really massive numbers, and that means it makes the job harder. Do we know what happens above two degrees, or is that just uh, are we saying if we get to that point, it's, it's game over? <laughs> I mean... <laughs> I get asked this a lot, and mm -hmm. two degrees is just this arbitrary threshold. It's because of the Paris We do know that yeah. every increment above that, it gets worse and worse and worse. So right. it's not like we suddenly hit this wall and it's game over. Mm -hmm. But we do know things get progressively worse the farther we go beyond that threshold. Yeah. So we don't want to be flirting with that. There's something interesting about this paper. As you look deeply into it, I started to realize, okay, the pace that we get to this 1.5 degrees or 2 degrees, that really is going to have a big effect here. Mm -hmm. Because they talked about that plasticity right. and the community level effects and things like that. A lot of the climate scenarios that folks have been looking at, and I would say this is probably the second piece beyond that research I talked about earlier, mm -hmm. putting these pieces together. The next stage that would then be spin this through some climate models mm -hmm. where you're actually projecting globally where is it going to warm up and where is there going to be more precipitation and how do those things play out mm -hmm. so then you could really start to right. get a picture of what's going to happen but if we have these things happening simultaneously that's going to be a complex question one issue is that because those other factors depend on the rate for trees to be replaced over time that takes decades right, right, or even yeah. centuries mm -hmm. The climate scenarios have this overshoot idea in mind. Oh, we're going to go ahead and blow past all these targets, but then we'll bring everything back down again, and trees will play a role in that. They'll be sequestering the carbon back again. But the ability for the trees to do that really depends on how steep yeah. we go up that curve and come back down. So right. if it's like really sharp, like the Matterhorn, and we go up mm -hmm. and it's super pointy at the top and then we fall back down again, that's really bad for these yeah, these dynamics. Yeah, they're going to be wiped out. They're yeah, be, exactly. Yeah. And then we'll have a lot of dead dying for us that won't be able to shift in response to that really steep peak. Right. If instead it's more like a smooth curve, like Kilimanjaro, mm -hmm. then these trees may be able to persist and all these other dynamics can play their course and play their role in this drama mm -hmm. and may be able to mitigate that effect. So they're still around. They're still around to play that role later. We have less turnover and more durable terrestrial biosphere that's going to be able to help us out of this predicament. Okay. Yeah, there was there were two things in there, too, that I thought were hopeful. The, the temperature increases. Right now, the biggest temperature increases are at the higher minimums. Not yeah, at that's the, right. That's right. Mm -hmm. And so that's, I guess, uh, kind of a hopeful. I, mm -hmm. I, we shouldn't grasp at it, though. We should, they, yeah, <laughs> right, you're getting right. the, yeah, we don't want to be yeah. hoping for you know, what's it plan for the worst and hope for the best. And I guess the other question, though, is these are they're talking about two degrees at the tropics, right? Yeah. So if we have two degrees, and the warming is mostly happening at the poles. Correct. So like, if we do limit global warming to two degrees, that would be less than two degrees at the tropics. They present the results saying if we stabilize global surface temperatures at two degrees, they didn't mention the effect you just talked about that mm. happens more slowly at the tropics and more quickly at the poles. So it'd be tough for me to interpret what right, that right, means okay. here and how that's spread across the tropics and how these things come into play. I'll have to call them for that. The other thing they didn't talk about, because this is just a study looking at tropical forests, but at the same time, we may have a big increase in the productivity of temperate forests because 
the CO2 fertilization effect is happening there. But mm-hmm. Those forests have even a little bit more flexibility in the climate conditions that they can mm-hmm. accommodate. Mm-hmm. And then we have boreal forests as well. It's more of a mixed bag there because the warmer temperatures also cause permafrost Me- yeah. thaw and emissions of methane from the ground and all these crazy things. So there's a chance of the boreal forest becoming this runaway train, big, you, big you, feedback loop. You told me about the day that we... Remember the day we met? Oh, yeah. Back in Bali, I think, right? 2006 or something. You were talking about that, the boreal forest and how this, I was like, oh, Jesus Christ. <laughs> yeah, so we don't really know how those things will play out there, but the temperate forest may have the ability to grow a lot more and soak up a good bit of that carbon. And mm-hmm. it's also some of the places where we could reforest or expand the area of forest. Mm-hmm. How about, is there a way, because we're in this area where we're on this managed planet, right? Yeah. And is there a way we can manage these tropical forests, or is that just too big of a a thing to even think about? We've got these higher temperatures, you've got the water issues, can we put cooling sprays over there? What what can be done, you know, to to help these forests through this mess that we're bringing them into? I think there's a ton of things that can be done, and I do think management could play a big role in that. Mm -hmm. Um, And land management overall. Everyone's really worried about the vast areas of deforestation that have happened in the past few decades. If those areas, though, could start to be reforested um, mm-hmm. through natural regeneration or whatever, uh, that would be the ideal approach. But plantations could also play a role. Mm-hmm. Um, if we can get some of those areas reforested, it means they haven't lost all of those ecological functions necessarily that, that were suddenly stripped away. Mm-hmm. Whereas here in North America, like... This was deforested hundreds of years ago. There's not a lot of chance of recovering some of those ecological functions. But in the tropics, maybe we still could. There may be remnants. There may be some connectivity that could be reestablished. Also, in terms of this management effect, one of the big things that's hammering tropical forests is fragmentation. Fragmentation happens. A little patch gets cleared. Mm -hmm. But that ends up having a much wider effect because it dries out the forests around it. Mm-hmm. So it's been documented now actually by some of these same folks on this paper mm-hmm. that that fragmentation drives the loss of carbon from the forests around that specific patch in addition to what's lost from that patch when it's cleared. So it has this knock-on, more extended effect in the areas around it. So if we could begin to infill those fragmented areas or prevent mm-hmm. them from happening in the first place, that would have a disproportionate benefit than just plant, plunking a new forest out in the middle of nowhere. Yeah, and there's just a bunch of trees. It's not really mm, a forest, mm. right? So looking at what we've got right now, we're in this situation. We've got the Paris Agreement. The talks are on hold because of COVID-19. Policy is yeah. frozen. Bolsonaro is burning the Amazon. Yeah. What policy options do we have? Like where, what can we do? What are the things when you look out at all the different possibilities out there right now, what can be, what's the most promising way that we can address this problem? Literally, they're not crickets, they're cicadas. (laughs) (laughs) What I've noticed in response to COVID is a change in mindset, mm-hmm. and I think that's significant. I also noticed that people are still doing the work that they can do at home in terms of, let's think through what are some of the mm-hmm. things, what are the solutions we haven't gotten to? Or what's the policy work? We can sit here and think about like these policy solutions, 
at a time when we're not running around in these various meetings and everything mm -hmm. else. Like it's a space for thinking things through right now is the way I interpret it. Mm -hmm. It's also changed the expectation of what people think is possible. So before everybody was like really quibbling about what if there's a 1% decline in GDP as a result of all these mm -hmm. policies. And now that's all thrown out the window, right. right? Like we've all been hammered in this idea of like, now that the damage has been done, maybe we could come back and do things in a different way. I think people are much more open to those kinds of ideas. Yeah. Um, they're also green. thinking yeah. about how do we invest differently, things that would have been maybe inconceivable before. Mm -hmm. What if we revived the triple C program and we had people out there planting trees or recovering for us or managing for us? Mm -hmm. They could do all that work in a socially distanced way. Lots of people are out of jobs right now, so it would yeah. be a job creator. Uh, and it could be a s sort of safe industry to build up at this time until things until we have some sort of other resolution of the yeah. COVID crisis. And those possibilities were something that would have been hard to imagine, but now people are talking about them more actively. Yeah. The rest, I think that's great. The restoration economy yeah. is here. Yeah, yeah totally. Mm -hmm. Okay. I think that's it. That gives me... I can't think of anything else. Thanks for having, having me over here. And okay. Enjoy, Super. Enjoying this uh, beautiful day in Oak Sorry for Oak the Park. cicadas. But, no, uh, they were, they're fine. Like, once I get my sound <laughs> levels straightened out. Okay, great. Thanks. Jason Funk of the Land Use and Climate Knowledge Initiative, or LUCKY, closing out this episode of Bionic Planet. For more episodes, check out my back catalog and consider becoming a patron at patreon.com forward slash bionicplanet. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash Bionic Planet. There you can support me for as little as $1 per episode and with a monthly cap. The address again is patreon.com forward slash Bionic Planet. That's one word, Bionic Planet, no dots or dashes. As always, I do have a few more episodes in various states of production, and I hope to top those off soon. And any help you can offer is greatly appreciated. Until then, I'm Steve Zwick in Chicago. Thanks for listening. Bye.